Hello, and welcome to the next episode of the American Filmmaker Podcast. On this episode, we are going to talk to Alana Waxman about her first feature film, We Burn Like This. Currently, the film is on the film festival circuit. We got a chance to talk with Alana while she was still finishing the film and in the process of some of the final editing to prepare the film for the film festival circuit. So this is going to be a great episode just to listen to the creative process of how someone's first feature film comes together. I'm also excited about this episode because we go deep into the the journey to become a filmmaker and just some of the experiences that you have along the way to become a storyteller. So please welcome Alana Waxman to the American Filmmaker Podcast. Thanks so much for having me here. It's, It's great to be here. Yeah. So me and Alana met because I was setting up in the basement for the Big Sky Film Festival. It's a podcast. And then I met her boyfriend and her boyfriend told me about a film he was working on with her and she's the writer director. Yes. And so I just wanted to talk to her about this process that she's going through because I think it's important for all filmmakers to hear from the front lines of filmmaking. Alana, could you tell us a little bit about growing up and when you realized you might be creative or you might be a filmmaker or storyteller? Sure, yeah. Uh, I grew up in Fairfield, Iowa, which is a small town, and I was raised uh, I was raised in a transcendental meditation community in that small town. My parents are from Brooklyn and uh, near Denver, actually. And they moved there before I was born and met there to follow uh, a guru who was starting this transcendental meditation community and starting a school and um, they moved there to be a part of it so I was born into that and raised there and I guess when did I first realize I was creative I guess growing up in a small town I think there's only so much to do and so I often was putting on shows with my friends from a pretty young age performing you know puppet shows and My mom is an artist and she, from when I was about two years old, she started doing these art camps every summer for myself and my friends. So basically every summer I started doing arts and crafts with my friends and my mom. And my mom still does those art camps. Um, So now she's been doing them for quite some time. And uh, so I guess it was just kind of a natural part of my growing up to be, to make things and to tell stories and perform. I always really enjoyed performing and I was involved in theater from a pretty young age. Uh, I would think I was in my first play when I was about seven years old. And so I thought for a long time I was going to be a theater actor. And that's what I put my attention towards through high school and into college as well. And by the time I graduated from college, I decided I actually didn't want to be a theater actor because there was something about the business side of acting that was draining me. And as I got further into the program I was in, I was learning more and more about how to market yourself as an actor. And I just, uh, I just had this kind of allergic reaction to that. And I re- what I enjoyed about acting was more of the self-discovery process and the reflection process and the expression, being able to express myself. So 
I went back home and after college and started teaching acting a lot and then and was trying to figure out what I was going to do next and I I had always made films since a young age too as a part of that creative process just with my mom's little video camera and I would really enjoy lip syncing videos in in particular and I remember also my friends and I made you know like a real world episode because we used to watch those and we made one, you know, in our, a fake one and made all this fake drama and that kind of thing. So I, I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't edit it. Like I, I don't, I didn't know how to edit the videotape, but so I would just hit stop whenever I, I was done and then we would pick up from there. What was the episode about? What was the drama that you were trying to stage <laughs> and recreate? Cause I think that that's often fun. The intention, um, at such a young age is, is clear and sometimes more pure than at an older age. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we were just kind of making up like a really, uh, just being over the top dramatic, you know, and some relationship drama. And I remember filming my friend on the phone, talking to someone, pretending to talk to someone and, you know, a lot of gossip. Cause I just, from what I remember, that's what that show was really about. <laughs> yeah. And I remember too, in high school, we had to make, because I was in a bit of an alternative school, uh, we had to do what we called a creative project. And it could basically be anything we wanted. And when I kind of tuned into myself at that time, what I really wanted to do was this kind of massive collage of, of pictures. And I made this, I just blew up pictures and kind of cut them out and they were of me and my friends and my family and just kind of made them all fit together on this gigantic board that really didn't stay up very well because it was so big and it was a few poster boards put together and that somehow was really satisfying that mixed with quotes like I I really used to enjoy putting together books that had some sort of meaningful quote and then a collage of pictures so I think in some ways that has something to do with filmmaking because I think it was putting together a few different mediums to communicate something and make something larger than what the picture was on its own or what the quote was on its own and some sort of reflection about how I felt about my life or my friends. And um, anyway, that's kind of looking back though at that. And it's an interesting exercise to be asked as you know a 16-year-old to create something and it could be anything. And um, so that's that's what I was tuned into and I can still kind of feel why I did that or what the part of me is that, that felt called to create something like that. And I think those early experiments in any creative person's life are really important. For me, my mom helped me put together a book in the fourth grade and I drew all the pictures and then I wrote the story and then she helped me bind it. And then I think, you know, later on, I ended up making collages too. But I think it's this style guide. And you're almost trying to reflect what you see and then create and and make something physical out of it that comes from your internal space. And And I think in a way, it's like the seed that gets planted and then you decide how to water it. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, what you were just saying reminded me of another earlier memory, if that's right, to go into, um, that I, 
my dad was always has always been a big reader and so I was always encouraged to read from when I was young and I had time I often had time to read because again the small town environment and I remember one time reading I used to read these young adult series uh, a number of different series for young adults and I remember I was reading this series called Forever Angels and I had taken a break and I came back and sat down on the couch where I had been reading but I turned on the TV instinctually because I forgot that I had been reading I thought I had been watching a show because it was so vivid in my mind what I was reading and I always thought that was really interesting and I felt very confused for a minute so I guess I I used to kind of mimic the writing that I was reading and start writing my own projects too that never really went anywhere but I just I remember one time starting a, a novel and that was very much mimicking the novels that I was reading at the time but I was I was definitely given a lot of encouragement from my parents and they were always very supportive of my creative projects and encouraging and seemed impressed so I'm sure that that also had some uh, some effect on my self-confidence in that area your vivid imagination when you were younger is is really kind of nice just to give that as an example so people can explore that you know if you're listening and your imagination runs like wildfire and and your emotions allow you to access certain states I think it's really you know it's an interesting place and so as you grew up what was the next step you know, because we all have to make the decision if we want to go to college or like, what is what are we going to do in this life? Are you going to be creative? And, you know, oftentimes everybody goes for the nine to five reality of just reinforcing this material world that we all live in. And we forget about the creative kind of spiritual realm that exists. So how did you decide what to study after high school? Yeah. I guess because of where I grew up and the philosophies behind the community that I was growing up in, the message that I always received was to go after what you enjoy doing. And when I was in high school and starting to apply for college, I actually didn't really have a sense of what that was. And I felt angry at needing to decide or that society was suddenly asking me to decide. So I just, I figured out that you could major in theater as an option and I had been doing theater. So I just kind of went with that because I knew I enjoyed it and wasn't thinking about a career necessarily was just going off of something that I enjoyed spending time doing and enjoyed the the self-expression. And so I went through college studying theater and then felt frustrated with the business side of things. So then kind of came home and reset and actually decided to follow a yoga teacher to Berkeley, California, and was not very involved with creative projects other than just because of my background in theater was kind of getting asked to teach sometimes or asked to act in a small role in a friend's project and that kind of thing. How was the yoga? Because I think it's really important um, as you listen to the different episodes, yoga, tai chi, movement forms that do something to help 
you channel this creative force as well as to help shed all this negativity that's around so you can maintain y- yourself. You know, your, your sense of being is really important and it pops up a lot. And so talk to me about the yoga. <laughs> yeah, I, I found out about this teacher whose name is Sophia Diaz and... I took a I flew out to Berkeley to take a week long course with her and just just kind of fell in love with the way she was teaching and felt like she had answers to questions I had about myself and just felt that a very strong pull that I just needed to study with her in order to understand myself and and to fill in these sort of holes that I felt I had and was running up against to in different ways and I just I just was tired of of a lot of things about myself that I was running up against and so I guess I felt that yoga was the answer specifically yoga taught by this teacher was the answer to me for a period of time so I moved I just kind of quickly moved out to Berkeley and started studying with her for about a year and a half once a month or so she used to come out to Berkeley and teach classes all week and then do a weekend retreat. So I basically took a bunch of part-time jobs so that I could drop everything when she came to town and just take every single class from her. And I grew, I grew a lot from, from studying with her and I would take private sessions with her. And, you know, I was pretty young. I was, I had just turned 23 when I started doing this and I just felt like I was, getting my life back somehow, even though it's not that I didn't have my life before, but there was just a lot about myself that I really didn't understand and or really didn't like and felt frustrated by. And by studying with her, I felt like I had a better sense of who I was and could act with more integrity. And I felt better in my body alone and more free and happier and yeah, just had a better sense of why I would get hung up on things or why uh, I would get stuck in patterns with different people in my lives and in my life. And that was a great Freudian slip in your lives, <laughs> because I do think that's, you know, one thing we don't give ourselves credit for, for being human. Oftentimes we think we got one body and one life, but I don't think that's actually true. I think we've been we've been on this process of rebirth. And so eventually all that accumulates into the current life form and the current life. And how do we deal with it? You know, and I think society somehow tries to channel us into this monotheism or something where there's only one God and there's only one life, you know, YOLO. (laughs) And I just think it's, it's uh, doesn't take into consideration the big picture. And so in a way, this yoga is, is helping you develop and see all these things. Um, just out of curiosity, what what kind of yoga was it? Was it Iyengar or like more Iyengar or was she doing? I'm like I'm just curious. Yeah, she was doing Hatha yoga, and she was specifically teaching Hatha yoga from. I'm trying to remember how she used to put it, but it was from a feminine spirituality perspective and a lot of these or all of these spiritual traditions that we're familiar with to varying degrees all come through men and through or male identified people who 
uh, are having a spiritual journey based on that identity. And we don't have any roadmaps or reflections or gurus who are women. And so that's what Sophia was, that's what her life work has been is, well, you know, even just the subtleties of, uh, well, if we start this series on the left side instead of the right side, you know, there's some subtle impact of that being more conducive to a female body and starting everything on the right side and doing everything with, with the right and is all male energy oriented. So her she teaches both men and women, but has definitely a specialty towards female spirituality. And it w- it just like blew my mind open. That's really the thing that I felt like I was missing an understanding of and a connection to was just even what that meant and what is my feminine energy and how do I develop that? Because I think I had, oh, I've always been really driven and really focused and therefore just hadn't figured out how to um, kind of just like fluff up my my being a bit and enjoy things a little more and have uh, the way I was connecting to people and prioritizing just was always kind of had a singular focus to it. And it was more conditional than unconditional. Mm hmm. I think so. And just and I I got to really be a part of all these really wonderful and inspiring women, most of whom were older than me. I was one of the youngest women who were who was participating in such a devoted way to her classes. And that really helped me and grew me too, of just having these women and around me to reflect and uh, role model a bit of what I was aiming myself towards as well. And um, yeah, so that's that was the yoga world that I was in and I'm still a part of, of it. Um, I still practice a very condensed version of the yoga that I learned with her um, every, almost every day. And I, I feel it in my body, though, that I'm, I'm, get, I'm stiffer. And uh, I, when I feel uncomfortable in my body, I just it affects my mood so much. So I feel that I just I just I think as creative people, we take on different energies and then the movement practices like I have to go to my Tai Chi class twice a week. And then I've got a thing I do outside of it. And I know when I've missed it, like I'm here missing my Tai Chi class. And I just have to figure out a way how to, you know, get it in because I'm going to meet so many filmmakers and uh, it's, you know, it's, it's going to be a lot of work. So, and I feel like what you're speaking to is having a regular movement practice so that you can uh, create and move through life Yeah, <laughs> and uh, be you. <laughs> right. And create to me also just means being in this life, you know, being, being myself getting through my day, even if that, 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 that alone is a creative act. And I feel a lot more prepared to go through the day and can, can meet the, whatever challenges might come that day with a lot more grace and a lot less upset if I do these things for myself. After practicing with Sophia for a year and a half, what happened next? Well, 
at the, I was living in this really cute and very Berkeley like house and it was a communal house and we had chickens and a garden and there were always people kind of floating in and out of the house. We sometimes had tenants who were just, you know, had a had a tent posted up in our backyard and we were also about a block away from this meditation and yoga center and there was a woman who was friends with one of my roommates who came through town and she had been there many times before I just had never met her before and she was sleeping on the couch and taking yoga classes down the street and we just got into a conversation and she had been to USC film school the graduate film school and we started talking about that and it about a year before, before I moved to Berkeley, I had had the thought that maybe a good area for me to go into next would be film. And it would be a way to, I guess, it would be a way to see the creative process more from the outside instead of being on the inside of it as an actor. And I had watched the making of this movie Across the Universe that Julie Taymor made. And the way Julie Taymor was talking about her creative process and the way the creative people on the team were talking about Julie Taymor, there was something about that that just clicked for me and I had the thought, I want to do that. I want to be Julie Taymor. I want to create the way she does. And I started looking into film school and got pretty overwhelmed pretty fast. I just knew nothing about even what the good graduate programs are for film and had no sort of real or any sort of experience in film and just kind of forgot about it and looked into it a bit and then put it aside. So I got into this conversation, this was now a year and a half later and I got into this conversation with this woman who was sleeping on my couch and she had been to USC film school and she told me that when she applied for USC that she didn't have any sort of background in film and that that's not necessarily what USC is looking for, that they're just looking for creative people who have experience in a variety of creative ways. And sometimes they even want that over people who have a tremendous amount of film experience. And so I looked at their website and the deadline was about a month out. So I just poured myself into applying for this program and looked around at other programs as well a little bit, but uh, found in some cases that you needed to submit your director's reel, didn't have that. So I just stuck with USC and I wanted to stay in California. Um, so then I got into grad school and I was really sad at the time to leave Berkeley, but at the same time it coincided with when my teacher Sophia was moving on from teaching at that yoga center. So I actually caught all of her classes. And when I w had to move to start school, was uh, she never ended up coming back to teach there. And she went on to teach elsewhere. So in that way, it just felt like the end of something. And it wasn't something that I was leaving. It was just ending. And that felt better. And then I went into a very different experience, moving to LA and going to USC graduate film school and had a lot of ideals and a way that I was, wanted to express myself that I often was running up against 
what I was being taught. And I, I'm super grateful for all of the technical aspects that I learned about filmmaking and the people I got to meet by going to school there because there's still people that I'm working with and leaning on and being hired by. And, and I feel that I got a very solid education. But as uh, in terms of trying to express the kinds of stories that I wanted to tell and kind of telling stories in maybe a different way than things I've seen before, I felt that that wasn't exactly what USC was set up for. Um, there were certain teachers that could understand what I was doing and could give me feedback, but there were other teachers that I felt uh, I just didn't feel super understood all the time. And that's, I guess I just really wanted to be understood because I didn't know what I was doing either. It was also brand new to me. And no matter where you go for graduate school, you will always find the people who resonate with you and then the people who don't. And uh, a lot of times uh, I went to graduate school at Ohio University and I remember going into one of the teachers and and almost crying because she was my script writing teacher and and she understood me more than the production faculty. And it wasn't anything that was strange. It was, there was just commonality there. Um, I was raised by a single mom. And so there was just something that I got from that relationship that, you know, I didn't get from the other ones. And so um, I think no matter where you are, that's going to happen. And so feeling that, um, I feel that. <laughs> and so I think it's, you know, finding those that, that you resonate with. Um, yeah, that's something I've been thinking about even very recently, just about the role of teachers in a creative environment and the, the delicate nature of that, actually, that I think is not often acknowledged at how much teachers can shape you for better and for worse. I guess that's perhaps true in all environments, but in a creative environment, you're being asked to really the people who are in there I guess to do that to really dig deep into themselves and and create something that's maybe new or very personal that it's really easy to get discouraged and I think that the teachers in environments like that have a lot of power for better or for worse about how they're gonna they are influencing the students that are in the room so yeah, I just feel like that's a delicate, it's a delicate thing. And to figure out how to give feedback without crushing someone, but instead to try to understand what they're trying to do and try to help them do that instead of feel that they have an ultimate kind of knowledge as if there is such a thing of how movies should be made just because they have had some kind of success and have been validated for that. And there are things that are proven to work, which are super necessary to know and be familiar with. That's just something I've been thinking about too right now, kind of jumping ahead because I've been actively getting feedback on my feature and it's reminding me about the things I had a hard time with or was frustrated by when I was in film school. Another podcast that I recorded was with Gina Lebrecht. She started making films, and her first film that she edited was with Les Blank. And what's interesting, what she said about that mentorship relationship was Les held the space for her. 
He didn't dominate the space. He held the space so that she could edit this documentary that took her seven years. And that was her first documentary. But it it goes on to become the seminal tea documentary called All in the Tea. And during her interview, we talked about that. And I've experienced it, too, in the film industry where you have people who want to dominate the space versus hold the space and then allow the creativity to flow and evolve because if the individual filmmaker or creative person can develop in that safe space, they're motivated enough to cross their finish line. They don't need you. (laughs) And like, it's hard to understand that. And going to a real world example that actually goes to USC, one of my friends uh, in undergrad would go on to study at USC And in his second year, he made a film called Songbird, and Songbird got to Sundance. And for all intents and purposes, I don't think any other USC graduate student did that. And then he played by the rules. And he made another film, which took him later, that would called um, Lend a Hand for Love, which was in an animation. But when you watch the film, there was a problem. It was about a hand that gets chopped off and has to go find the other hand but the hands were all the same color. And I was like, why didn't your professor tell you to make the hands from different cultures? And what, you know, he goes on, and even though he followed the rules from these professors, I think he's living in a warehouse now. And he, like, freelances editing, you know? And so I don't think it necessarily worked out for him, you know, because he followed the rules and... Is he better off for it? Is he the next Christopher Nolan? Which is, you know, in my mind, an illusion. So I think in many ways, it's a lot better that we all don't try to become the poster children, but we just try to become what we're supposed to become. And I know that sounds weird, but I feel like once the creative human has turned on their light or what I like to call their different energy centers, then that creative expression happens and it's not for you to judge because they're going somewhere and they're trying to get to a certain place. Yeah. And so after school, what kind of projects did you make? And then what led you to writing and directing and editing your first feature film, We Burn Like This, which is currently still in, in the process. So I think that's why this is really exciting for everybody listening that is a short filmmaker and is thinking about making their first feature. So we've got a unique snapshot here of Alana Waxman and her process. So when I was in grad school, I made a short film called Cheyenne is Burning. And it was based on a short story that I had written in college. And it was a five minute film. And there was, it was inspired by things in real life or people I know in real life, but very much fiction. And I made that film and there was something about that film that I wasn't, I didn't feel done with. And I had set it in Montana and I had never been to Montana at the time, but I had a cousin in Butte, Montana that I used to write to when I was young. So had a sort of idea of what Montana was like and figured that it was a version of Iowa in some ways. So when I graduated from from grad school, I let me let me back up. I was I was interning in my final semester 
for Mark Platt Productions, who uh, Mark Platt Productions does like a lot of really great projects, and they work with Meryl Streep a lot. They they do a lot of musicals. They're responsible for the musical Wicked on Broadway, and they they also do a lot of films. Anyway, I was interning for them, and I decided to ask for advice as my graduation date was nearing to one of the producers. I said that I wanted to write and direct my own films, and I wasn't sure how that was going to happen or how to take that next step while living in L.A. and needing to now work. And it it just all was kind of coming down of going to take these next steps. And basically, my this this producer suggested that I do something that is not creative for work for as much money as possible so that I have as much time and energy to create my own projects and to not even worry about the connections that I've made through film school, uh, through continuing to cultivate them, that they'll be there. So kind of inspired through what he was saying, I decided that I would start writing my feature, a feature version of the short, Cheyenne is Burning. And I started writing, and I got a couple of pages in, and then I realized that I knew nothing of the place that I was writing about. And, and that the main character was a Native American girl, and I was diving into a world that was that I could kind of get by with for the purposes of a few minute uh, a movie that was th- a few minutes long. But for a feature length film, I realized I couldn't just Google things to know. So I decided I would take a road trip to Montana. I convinced a friend of mine to go with me, and we drove from LA to Montana for two weeks and just kind of showed up at this powwow at, uh, on the 4th of July at the Northern Cheyenne powwow, which is really off the beaten path. It's in Lame Deer, Montana, which is way on the eastern side of the state. And we got all sorts of looks because I rolled in there with my California plates on my car. And I realize now that there are a lot more well-known powwows that happen that are you know at universities and everything, but going way into this tiny powwow uh, was a bold move that I did not realize at the time. And anyway, we drove around the state for two weeks, camped along the way, and met different people. Tried, I tried to get a feel for the environment and the people, talked to some people about what I was doing, went back to L.A., and I realized there was just so much to understand. And so I decided I would just move to Montana and... I knew one person from my childhood who lived in Missoula. So I went to Missoula and proceeded to live there for the next five years as I was developing this script. And that is a whole, this this is a whole other chunk of the story is what those five years have been for me. Um, That basically I went down the road developing a script that was called Cheyenne is Burning about a Northern Cheyenne Native American girl who's feeling out of place, uh, living off the reservation and disconnected from her culture and trying to find a way home, a home, a way home to herself, and both literally and figuratively, I guess, symbolically. And that's what I was trying to write. And 
over the last five years, a lot has changed, I'd say, for better in there's a lot more awareness and attention to who's telling what stories and making space, opening the doors to more identities of people telling stories. And the further that I got into my story that I was trying to tell and trying to bring on collaborators and do everything with a tremendous amount of respect, uh, there was always a little thing in the back of my head that felt self-conscious about what I was doing and was questioning what I was doing, which is not something I had any sort of question about when I was in LA and I first left to move here. But I guess that was part of what I was aiming to find out, that by being here, by being around people, becoming friends with people, um, having to answer to why I was making this movie that wasn't a documentary, it was fiction, I was making it up, so why, why is it this character? Why does it have to be this character? Um, being a non-Native person telling a Native story, there's so much healing around the relationship between Native and non-Native people that I was trying, I was thought I was a part of doing something that was helpful and realized that maybe I was a part of the problem or that I, um, that my film would never have the effect that I wanted it to, it would never communicate what I was wanting to communicate because there would always be this barrier that would come first of that, of my identity versus the identity of the character in a time when there's just more healing to do in that arena um, by giving more space to, not, to Native people and people of color to tell their own stories versus white people trying to tell their stories for them. Though I think there is a lot of validity and helpful perspective that can come from being outside of a community that you're writing about. But I think in this case, especially as my first feature film, I wanted to be sure that I was telling something personal and that I was telling it in a way that would have an impact. And so two years ago or so, I basically started over and I rewrote, adapted my film essentially to be a Jewish girl growing up in Billings, experiencing anti-Semitism, feeling out of place. Um, she's a Holocaust, she's a descendant of a Holocaust survivor and kind of questioning her own identity and also has, in both stories, there was this childhood trauma that has to do with fire, which is where the burn uh, word comes from in the title that she's facing and, and trying to heal both on a personal level and a sort of greater historical trauma level. And in that way, it's the same story as it always was, but telling it from my own identity, which is, I think, ultimately, I was, the, the girl was always me. I just was, it was easier to see the girl through a different identity than my own identity. Or I had thought of earlier of changing the identity to be closer to my own. And honestly, my first thought was, well, that's so boring. I'm so uninterested, which says something about, you know, my own, myself. And I think in addition to the sort of the landscape of, of storytellers changing and the awareness that has come up to make space for more people and, and more different identities of people to tell stories. Um, the other thing that's changed in the last few years is 
there has been a rise of anti-Semitism, and that has a lot to do with the president and what he stands for and the people that are kind of coming out of the woodwork that a lot of people that I was really not aware that was still such a problem. And my my grandparents were Holocaust, were Holocaust survivors. My dad immigrated to the U.S. as a two-year-old. He was born in a refugee camp in Germany after the war. And so I'm first generation on my dad's side. And yet I feel super disconnected to that history because for one, I never met my grandparents. And for two, for a second, uh, I was raised in this transcendental meditation community and kind of away from all this trauma. And I think that happens to a lot of, uh, in a lot of families that are trauma survivors that one way of dealing with it, a common way of dealing with it is to not talk about it and to not sort of keep it present. But in that way, I think there's more and more research now coming out about what historical trauma means, what, how you can hand down trauma and in different ways and how that can show itself. And that's something that I think there's a lot of communities from what I've had conversations around that are looking at trauma in that way, that it doesn't even have to be something that's happened presently. It's just like behaviors and psychological unconscious things that are handed down that are making people act in certain ways and therefore staying stuck in a way because they're almost like recreating their own trauma that they didn't even live, but it's actually in your genes. And that's really fascinating. And, oh yeah, that's the word I was looking, I was thinking of epigenetics is a whole thing that's becoming more and more studied now. Anyway, I'm trying to write about that in my story. (laughs) You're speaking to generational trauma. And I think it's really important that people know this is real. Because part of what we do with our actions in this lifetime is to try to heal those wounds. I don't know if you've been alive for seven lifetimes. I don't know if you've been alive for a hundred. But I do know that it accumulates. And so, in a way, what your dad did was go into the transcendental meditation community to try to understand that trauma and try to heal it. And I think as filmmakers, we don't understand that we're playing with part spirit world, part physical world, and then we're almost exposing our generational trauma in order to help heal. But not only for us, but also for the audiences that watch the movies. And I think it's really important for people to understand that because that's why, to me, filmmakers are so special because we're on this creative journey that has happened lifetime after lifetime, and we are trying to explain this energy that brought us here. What I like to say is the colonizer never quite disappears. They just change face. And in the next life, you don't know what that looks like. And so trying to understand that through understanding your own being is is really, really important. And also, while listening to you, the shadow work came up. And I feel like as humans, we have to do the shadow work. We have to look at these pieces of ourselves that are not quite whole yet and make them whole. We need to take these holes that are in our life, in our field, these traumas, and understand them. And then through that shadow work, we can become ourselves and we can become rooted 
you know, and we can understand all the lifetimes that we've been a part of that came through really strong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you reminded me of something. One of my professors who I really loved at USC used to say to me, he, cause you know, if you, if you meet me that I tend to be a pretty cheerful, friendly person. And yet, uh, all of my movies pretty much are really intense and really there's always someone going through a breakdown basically and my teacher was commenting on that and there was a, a project I was involved with where I was actually co-directing a feature-length film with 10 other or nine other directors from USC and we got to pick or try to pick which section of the movie we wanted to to direct and I picked the end of act two as my section because that's when, to me, that was the most interesting. And my teacher was just reflecting on that to me or making a joke of that saying like, you always have to choose the most intense parts or the, the most dramatic parts that, and I said, yeah, I don't know. That's just what I'm drawn to. And I think that's a common thread from my acting experience as well that I always I mean, as actors, I feel people always want the great monologues or like the the characters that are breaking down to to enact. And something that really stuck with me too from that world is that the purpose of, you know, uh, the original purpose of theater and uh, Greek tragedy is for the purpose of catharsis, and that these people enact these tragedies, and you feel and identify with the person going through this horrible thing and release that emotion by identifying. And they used to, or I feel like I, I read somewhere, or was taught at some point in my theater training that the purpose of that was a society service, really, so that you could release those emotions and not have to enact them, go on to enact them in your life because you've already felt them and released them. So I think there is, there's a, there's something I'm trying to do with this film in particular because it's so personal, has become increasingly personal, and something that I just believe is true about the power of a film and what it's capable of, and not all film uses that to its full extent. And I think it has a lot to do, too, with the things that I picked up from my yoga training and about... Um, about holding space, I guess, like you were saying earlier, about holding space and taking people on a journey to examine the corners of themselves that you'd rather not feel. And you feel them in a film like mine by watching that character do that. And I'm hoping that in whatever ways that people watching the main character will relate to her and reflect on their own lives, even unconsciously and it will feel perhaps a little less alone in that feeling and I guess more strength or more energy to be able to release those feelings, that those feelings do not have to own you. Or that's just what I'm trying to do and I'm hoping that other people relate to how I feel. So on the process of writing it, you made this turn and then once you started rewriting it. When did you know it was ready to go and start filming? And then what year did you, you know, what are some of these years around this? Sorry to bring it back to the material space. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> um, 
That's a really good question. I didn't know when the script was done. I never felt like it was done. I just wanted to make the film and felt that I had rewritten it so many times that I just wanted to move forward. And I wasn't sure if I was going to get any further along with rewriting and rewriting in a way because perhaps I had maxed out my ability to keep rewriting it. And I was, I just had to set a date of when we were going to start filming. And um, so this was all pretty fairly recently. We shot the film this past summer. We started July 2nd. We shot for 19 days. And then we did a little bit of pickup shoots in August before the weather changed in Montana. And then took a break from it while myself and Marshall Granger, who's my editor, uh, worked other jobs. And then starting in November, Marshall started focusing in on putting together assembly cut. And starting at the end of December, we started working together every day and treating it like a job, because it is a job, <laughs> which is funny to say. Um, but we, we moved so that we weren't paying rent anymore and we could just focus on the project as our job. We've been editing the movie nine to five and then working these other side jobs that we continue to work from projects in the past and, and bosses in the past, like the Big Sky Documentary Film Festival. We've been doing those on our off hours. And it used to be the reverse that we would work for these festivals and organizations here in Missoula as our main job and work on side projects on the side, work on my film or Marshall has a lot of projects too that he does. And so we just kind of inverted it and we've been focusing on the film as the primary thing we've been doing uh, for since the end of December. As I was listening, I realized that's kind of how it happened for me too. You work on the films on the side and then eventually they become the main jam and it's this weird transition. And then how do you keep the main jam or always working on films so that you're creatively expressing yourself? Because I think at the end of the day, these companies don't know what the stories are. These distributors, I don't even think know how to distribute a movie. I mean, we're in the streaming wars. So I think the creator as the filmmaker in a way knows a lot more if they can tap into it. And I think being able to tap into it is uh, important and giving, giving space and permission and then knowing when to make the move. <laughs> can you talk about the creative community that came out to support you? Cause I feel like another illusion that the film industry likes to push is that, yeah, there are individual creators, but there's also a team. And I think the community helps support the filmmaker when no one else is. And I'm talking about the companies, I'm talking about the festivals, I'm talking about the distributors, I'm talking about the financers, but the creative community, which if you have industry folks in that creative community, even better. But I feel like the creative community is bound by more of an unconditional love versus the conditionality of what can you do for me? And I think that kind of short-term thinking is where we've created so many problems in this business or 
is where so many problems have been created in the entertainment industry. And I feel like the filmmakers we see have creative communities behind them. So can you talk about the creative community around the film and you? Yeah, definitely. I kind of ended up in Missoula by accident. I had no idea that there was any sort of film community here. I moved here because I had one childhood friend who lived here. I knew Missoula was definitely a creative environment, but I just didn't know that there was a film community here. So I ended up working for, when I first moved to Missoula in the end of 2014, I ended up getting put in touch with this filmmaker, Andrew Smith, who him and his brother, Alex, have made now three successful independent films. Most recently was a film called Walking Out that was at Sundance, and you can now watch it on Netflix. And they, they're from here originally, and they're not currently living here, but at the time, Andrew was living here with his wife and his kids, and he was looking for a nanny. And my friend put me in touch with him because I actually, before I went to grad school, that was the main thing I was doing for work was nannying and, and babysitting and working at childcare services. So I applied to him as a nanny, but I also said that I was coming from USC Film School and I was coming there to make a film and that's why I was coming. But I do have all, I was able to put together a whole resume of my nannying experience. So he ended up hiring me as his nanny, but also as his assistant because he basically said to me, well, we do need a nanny, but it sounds like you have skills that would be very useful to me and to my wife as well. So I would work half the time as their assistant. His wife is a filmmaker and a creative director. She works for these amazing campaigns. From what I can tell, I know very little about the field, but she's one of the top people in her field. And Andrew is always writing for other people or um, developing projects and at the time he was working on developing Walking Out. So that became basically through Andrew and Courtney. I met everyone I know here in Missoula because they were so connected to the film community. You'll see that one of the venues for a Big Sky Documentary Film Festival is the Roxy Theater. The Roxy is a theater that has been around since 1937, but in the last few years, basically starting, I think it was just a year or two before I moved here, it became an art house theater because of the new ownership and became a, a theater that was daily showing both new independent films and other classic films and all these different series. And I found that there were all these really wonderful people that were working there who are also filmmakers. And there's also, you know, there's a Montana film office. There's grants you can get through the Montana film office. There's work coming through here pretty consistently there's film festivals we have three film festivals or actually more now we have four film festivals just in missoula we have big sky documentary film festival which is definitely the biggest film festival we have the wild international wildlife film festival which is the oldest running wildlife film festival in the whole world is out of missoula and we have montana film festival which is uh, a newer film festival that's fiction only because we have these giant documentary film festivals. And I've been, I've worked for all of those festivals in my time here. I realized there was one year that I just jumped from job to job as the kind of the seasons changed and each 
festival was getting geared up. And there's also now um, the Indigenous Film Festival is a new festival for the last couple years. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of film-related work. And I expected to move here and work at a coffee shop and write a film. Not that there's anything wrong with working at a coffee shop. There's some really good coffee shops here in Missoula um, and delightful people who work there. Uh, but I feel so lucky that I have spent the last five years working in some capacity of film, whether it was for Andrew, whether it was for these film festivals or for the Roxy Theater. I spent the last two years working as a staff member at the Roxy Theater and uh, and then working on films, other people's films too. I've gotten hired to uh, go on to these short films and then also have been a part of two feature films that have shot out here that have both done really well. So the community around that there we're all it's a very small community and there's a lot of overlap even the staff here at big sky doc fest there's a lot of overlap from the roxy staff there's people including myself who work for both organizations most people in the town think that it is the same organization but it's not so th there's so much overlap and through working for other people in the years leading up to my shooting my film I got to know a lot of people who are freelancing in various capacities, jumping onto film sets. I worked for them or with them. Therefore, on my film, which we ended up having a core team of 12 crew members, that there was only one filmmaker I brought out from LA who I knew from grad school. And the rest were Montana-based filmmakers which is not at all the way I thought my film would go when I first moved here. I thought I would be kind of importing everyone from from grad school to come make a movie with me in Montana. But it was, I think, a really wonderful experience to be able to work with people that I knew so well or knew to varying degrees, I suppose, but had worked with them on other projects in other capacities for these film festivals and for the Roxy Theater to then be able to work with them on my film and they had been hearing about my film for so long that I think it was a real family feel. And just the other day I got to show the current cut to some of those people and they, the feedback was really wonderful and it just felt really satisfying for them to feel proud of their part of the film as well. And we received a grant early on from Montana Film Office. This story is showing us a different story, a different sort of story than the kinds of films that have been made here in Montana. I hope that it can be something that this community will be proud of and is so, so, so integral to having made this film in the city of Billings coming together and supporting us. I could just keep going on that. And a lot of the actors too are from here. Um, there were some of the main actors were from elsewhere, but I've gotten to know people who don't necessarily act full time, but people who are the the University of Montana, their drama department is incredibly strong. And the people who have been through that program, you know, we had open auditions and over and over again, I saw people who had been to that program as coming out as the strongest people who were auditioning. So there's, yeah, it's filled with Montana actors with a few sprinkles of people from elsewhere. So 
hopefully audiences and listeners can start to search out this film at festivals around late 2020 or even early 2021. Yeah, getting into getting a great premiere is uh, really something I hope for for this film. And, you know, we have our website, which is just weburnlikethis.com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. And um, yeah, help us if you'd like to get through. But as you said, too, just sharing our info and getting it out there and helping us make connections in meaningful ways. Because after the film festival light, life, or as a part of it, I definitely want to create special events around this film that where we can have meaningful discussions because it it deals with issues that are so present and timely, um, you know, mainly around anti-Semitism and anti-Semitism in places all over, really. But it's definitely been a part of my life here in Montana. And just to have discussions and awareness around that is something I really hope this film will be a platform for. Alana, is there anything else you would like people to know about your first feature film, which is coming to audiences soon, six months to a year soon, which is soon in movie terms? Yeah. Um, well, I just appreciate the platform to be able to talk about the process because I think when people watch the film, there's no way you're going to know all that went into it, like any film. And... I hope to be able to travel around to have these discussions so people get more, even more out of the film than the film will bring on its own. And um, yeah, I guess I just want to, it sounds like this podcast is a really useful tool to inspire people and kind of debunk some of the myths around filmmaking and that it's, it's hard work, but also it's magic work. I've definitely been through some of the most challenging moments of my life so far in the process of making this film, but it's through following this inspiration that I got to sort of look at these dark corners of myself. And then for that, I am grateful. And I'm grateful to be sitting in this moment versus the moment when I was in those moments, <laughs> but I'm sure there'll be more moments to come. And I hope that it ends up being more than something that was just me trying to figure out something about myself. I hope that it has a bigger resonance than that because that's really what I'm hoping for, what I'm aiming for. But we'll see. We'll see, I guess, what the creative mystery of this project will bring in the future. And I'm grateful for the ride that it's taken me on so far, even though a lot of the time it has really not been easy. But I can't really imagine doing anything else or I've tried to quit the project a few times and I don't know I, I feel like there's no right or wrong way to do any of this and it can look like there's a right and wrong way very easily and it can be so easy to compare yourself to others and that's not the point and I hope that things like this podcast can help bring out the varying ways that people kind of find their way through a creative process and how what it really looks like to create something that you might only see the end result of. Thank you for listening to this episode of the American Filmmaker Podcast. 
I just want to thank Alana Waxman for all of her time in talking about her process to create her first feature film, We Burn Like This. I encourage everyone who's listening to watch this film when you can. All of the links to We Burn Like This are in the show notes so that everyone can stay up to date on this film and watch it when they have time. And I also want to thank the creative team behind this episode. I want to thank the host, Josh Hyde. And then I also want to thank the producer and editor of the show, Hunter Spears. Thank you so much, Hunter. We appreciate you a lot. And the music for this show was provided by Michael J. Deller of the Budos Band and Charles Bradley and his extraordinaires. Thank you for listening, and we will catch up with you next time on the American Filmmaker Podcast. 